Luke says that while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. And there were, in that same country, shepherds abiding. This is King Jimmy now, isn't it? Keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, you can tell, can't you? An angel of the Lord shone around them. And the glory of the Lord came upon them. And they were sore afraid. That's Greek for terrified. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid because... I have good news. That word's literally gospel. Don't be afraid. This is the gospel. Thou great joy to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the anointed one, the Lord. And this will be a sign. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So the shepherds pulled themselves together and they said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has told us has happened. So they hurried off and they found Joseph and Mary, comma, and the baby lying in a manger. Did you hear that? Three times Luke tells us. He wasn't just born. He was born in a manger. Normally we drag the manger out on the last Sunday of Advent when the children dress in bathrobes. We put a doll inside the straw. Parents love to take pictures of their little ones. The others wonder if that's a real baby or a doll. And we hear the voices in the back of our heads saying, as soon as this service is over, we got to get in the car and we got to get back home because we got a bunch of people coming over and we got a lot of stuff that we don't have done yet. This is a two-minute warning. Christmas is upon us. And I think in the hurry, we miss... The genius of the manger. Bonhoeffer said, God is in the manger. This is really God. This is not a child on his way to becoming God. No, no. This is actually God himself. And this is really a manger. This is not some make-believe thing on its way to becoming a throne. This is God whose glory fills the heavens, whom you cannot look at and live, wrapped in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Frederick Buechner said, the one who created 
Everything there is comes to us in diapers. (laughs) And Luther said in a Christmas sermon, you've not comprehended the mystery of the incarnation until you get close enough to the manger to smell the messy diapers. There is genius in the manger. Don't hurry past it. Maybe the best way to uh, talk about it is to talk about the opposite. When I was a kid, my favorite superhero was Superman. He's a man. Superman started in 1933. There was a couple of high school students living just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. They concocted the image. And by 1938, he made his first debut in the comics. 1939 came Batman. 1940 came The Flash and The Green Lantern. 1941 came Captain America. And 1943 came Superwoman. (laughs) That's six in five years. Then there was a long pause from the end or the middle of the 40s to the 60s. And there was another glut of superheroes. Then it was the Fantastic Four. Then it was the Hulk. Then it was Spider-Man and a few others, all kind of clustered together in the early 60s. And today, they're all making a return. I was at the theater on Friday night to watch, um, what's the Charles Dickens one? The Man Who Invented Christmas, yeah. And there's one called, is it Justice League? Because you can't save the world alone. They're all coming back, all these superheroes. When I was a kid, as I said, mine was Superman. I'd put my coat on and I'd put the hood on my head and leave my arms out of the sleeves. You've done this and run as fast as I could in hopes that I could leave the ground. Never did. So I would at least try to get the coat to flap behind me. So I'm in just on a tear down the sidewalk one afternoon, about seven, eight years old. I got my arms out. I'm feeling gravity. And I look behind me and my coat is just starting to fly. (laughs) I never saw the pole. (laughs) Bam! I hit that thing faster than a speeding bullet. Every bone in my body was a tuning fork. (laughs) I hit that pole and I went down. My superhero was dead. So I lay all these superheroes like on a timeline um, this week. And I'm asking myself, why do they all come in bunches? And I have a theory I could be wrong. I'm no historian. I'm warning you. The first time they came was from 1938 to 1943, about the time America went into World War II. 
And as every superhero has a narrative, there is always a villain who's going to take over the world and everybody around him is powerless and scared and they're turning on each other. There was a villain in Germany who was building what was known to the Germans as the Ubermann, the superman, the superhuman race. And in 1961 and 1962, America was in the Cold War. And this time, the villain was not a short guy with a funny mustache. It was a bald, round guy from Russia who was going to take over the world. And I'm just wondering if we didn't, at two periods in our history, create superheroes because we needed a superhero. I wonder if we felt like the world was out of control, like there was no justice and there was no peace and we needed someone to come in from the outside and just bust into something and make it right and call evil to justice again. And we didn't know how to do it. And so we created these figures and we threw our expectations onto them. We shaped them in our image. And since that day, they've been returning the favor by shaping the way America thinks about salvation. Let me say that a little differently. At the end of the day, superheroes is not simply a cast of characters. It's a way of saving the world. Superheroes are a way of fighting injustice. They're a way of establishing yourself. They're a way of getting things done in the world. And I wonder if we did not take our expectations and throw them on to fictional characters and those characters in turn have shaped the way we Americans see salvation. So I'm stumbling through Luke chapter 2 this week and I hit verse 12. That's verse 11 actually. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, wait for it, a Savior. Who is Christ, the anointed one and Lord, master, ruler of the universe. And this will be a sign. Here's how you'll spot him. You'll see a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. whole thing seems like an accident to me. Joseph and Mary are on their way to Bethlehem because Caesar's called a tax. Translated, that means Joseph is headed back to pay a tax. How happy do you think he is? He's only part married. From what I can put together, it's a hurry-up wedding. And they've never consummated the wedding. They're on their way to Bethlehem, and she is nine months pregnant with a child that is not his. And they're doing this because some dude in Rome has declared a tax. And when you read the story like this, it looks like everything is an accident. When they get there, 
He is born in a manger because there is no room in the inn. The inn, they tell us, is simply a space. Houses in those days were single-story dwellings with a guest room and a main living room. So all of the family, children, mom, dad, everyone who lived in the house, you'd hate this, all lived in a living room. This is where they slept, it's where they ate, it's where they lived, they played. And then at the end of this living room, there was typically a two or three step descent into a place where they brought the animals at night because in those days, the animals were your income. And so you had a cow or you had a goat or maybe a couple of sheep and you tied them out in the day but at night so they wouldn't be stolen. You would bring them in and set them in the lower part of the house. It's the same house the family's living in. And there is typically either a two or three step decline or there's a couple of large old timbers here. And the mangers are set up on the main floor so during the night the animal can walk over and just eat out of the manger. And the way Luke makes it sound is they got there and the guest room was occupied and because the guest room was occupied she had her baby in a living room in front of everybody and then she said well where do you put him so she just laid him here whole thing seems like an accident until you get to verse 12 where Luke says this will be a sign this is a sign I thought, of what? Signs are miracles. The resurrection was called a sign. Turning water into wine was called a sign. Healing the man's son when you're not even in the room, that was a sign. Mark 16 says, when you cast out demons and drink poison without getting sick, that's a sign. In other words, when people see a sign, their eyes get big, their heart starts to pound, and they stop doubting and believe. But this is a sign of a different sort. When you look at this, you roll your eyes in disbelief and walk away and start doubting. What is this a sign of? I think it's a sign of the king and his kingdom. I think it's God's way of saying, when I come into the world, you will not recognize me because I will not come as a superhero. I will not come from the outside. I will not be bigger than life. I will not outsmart everyone. I will not take the world by storm. I won't be bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, louder, or more popular than anyone. It turns out a superhero is a way of saving the world and the manger is another way. And sometimes I wonder if we have been addicted to the other way. When we have enemies, the first thing we think about is beating them down. When we go into boardrooms, we try to outsmart. When we go through school, 
We seek popularity. You understand? We seek almost by instinct everything that the manger was not. And I think what I hear in Luke's sign is that when you look in the manger, you can say, this is who God really is, and this is how God saves the world. And that's what I came to tell you. This is who you belong to. You are not prodigies of some superhero. You do not have to build your body of work. You don't have to outsmart and beat everyone. You don't want to become popular. You don't really want to become powerful. Because the more powerful and smart and clever and manipulative and bigger you get, the less you can change anything. I'm going to tell you this one time. It'll be true for all of your life in every domain. If you want to change something, you have to go slow. And you have to play small, not large. And you have to come in foolish and humble, not powerful. And you have to move quietly, not loudly. And you have to hide and embed yourself in other things and disappear. You cannot become more popular. If you seek these things, you will lose your influence over years. That is not the way of the manger. That is not the way he came. And that is not how he changes the world. Think about it, church. Think about it, you guys. When God came and found you, you were not influential people. None of you. None of you were of noble birth. None of you were wise by human standards. But God, he chose the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. Did he not? And he chose what was weak to shame what is strong. And he chooses what is lowly and what is despised to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast in anyone but in Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to know. That's who you are. That's who you belong to. He is your power. He is your wisdom. He is your brilliance and your strength. He is your hero. Not some other thing you're chasing. And this is not, that is not rather how you change the world. This week when you go into a board meeting and you go to power up, you remember, please, this is not how you change anything. 
And when you go to outsmart or overpower and overwhelm someone, you remember he came poor and hidden and he buried himself in the hearts of people. Wait for it. Because they wanted him there. He never thrust himself on anybody. He just came like that. And they let him in. It does not matter whether a person is a sinner or a saint. We live in a country that is chased superheroes. And we have superhero mentalities. And this Christmas, I'm telling you, God is the anti-superhero. Would you bow your heads? Can you in your mind now go to a place Maybe a place where you will be this week. Maybe it's home with the family. Maybe it's in that boardroom. Maybe it's in a locker room, a classroom, a living room. And there in that room is, well, that person. (laughs) It's uh, that person that makes it hard for you to do what you want to do, the one that's always in the way, the one that's holding you back, the one that you don't want in the room. And when you see them, can you remember a manger? Not a throne, a manger. And can you tell yourself, This is how you change the world. You come slow. You start small. You go quiet. You come invisible. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There in that room, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ there rule in your hearts. For you belong to one body and you were called to peace. And let the word of Christ dwell inside of you richly as you teach and admonish one another in that room with all wisdom and with songs and psalms and spiritual hymns. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed in that room, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father 